Quote, a doctor, a dentist, four chemists, farmers, shopkeepers, factory workers, post office employees, teachers, secretaries, dressmakers, students and housewives, end quote. Women who stood up for their beliefs, the price, a terror and barbarity beyond words, 230 sent to Nazi death camps, 49 survived together with love and grace. Hello, and welcome to the Book Club Juxtapositions podcast, a book club where we discuss two pieces of literature and juxtapose them based on theme, plot, author style, societal norms, and basically just how the book grabs you. All of the interesting things that make for a great spoiler-filled book club discussion. Did you say spoiler-filled? Yes, I said spoiler-filled. In each episode, we will mainly focus on one of the literary pieces. With all good literature, one can't help but make comparisons and connections to other literary works and in life. In the second episode, we will examine the same ideas with the counterpiece of literature. This is just a fun way to compare and contrast two pieces of literature and have a lively discussion. This is an adult podcast intended for adult listeners, and we may use adult language. Adult language? What the hell? In this month's episodes, we will explore the theme of female perseverance in the face of danger or death using the books, The Flight Girls versus A Train in Winter. I'm Tracy May, author, multi-award winning screenwriter, and former educator. I'm Kimberly Andy, creator of the blog Lily Pads of Curiosity, travel writer, and former educator. A Train in Winter by Carolyn Moorhead is the true story of 230 women in the French Resistance during World War II who were sent to Nazi death camps and their courageous struggle for survival. Few of us, thank God, have to face the sheer and never-ending atrocities that these women, as well as countless others, faced under the Nazis. Theirs is a journey of perseverance, courage, unselfish service, and devotion to each other that show us the real meaning of love. First thing I would say, as we're doing this, like neither one of us are historians. We just loved exploring this book and all its themes and learning from it. But just kind of a caveat, neither one of us are historians. The way they checked in with each other, the way they gave food or water to those in needs, even when they were starving themselves. The women took care of each other, both emotionally and physically. Feminine strength and perseverance personified in the darkest of hours. I want to start by saying just absolutely how heart-wrenching this book was. And it was heart-wrenching to read, but I think that some of the things that I did in the very beginning was go back and look at the history of the French Resistance and who these women were. And the beginning of the book was difficult for me to get into, embarrassingly, because it was boring, I guess, to me just to be reading about these women's lives. And this is obviously before I knew exactly where this was going and how much this book was going to impact me. And then I went and started doing some other research about the French Resistance and all that entailed with that. So I'm going to give a little bit of, shall we say again, drowned you in facts. Are you down for that? I'm down for that, yes. (laughs) Um, We did some research, and this isn't all of my own words. I wanted, just like we said, we're not historians, but I just wanted to um, share with you some of the stuff that we compiled. So in January of 1943, we've talked about these 230 women of the French Resistance were sent to the death camps by the Nazis who had invaded and occupied their country. That's the part that I wanted to go back and take a look at. Why were these women um, sent 
to the death camps. They weren't Jewish. They weren't um, the traditional ones that we think that were sent to the death camps. And so why were they singled out and taken? And, and another big question I have is, you know, how were they caught in the first place? But they were part of the French resistance. When the Germans came in during the war and they overtook France, which they did pretty quickly, they weren't okay with it. And so they helped. They helped get information to the other side because they could, as far as being um, in their jobs and the roles that they had, they were able to obtain information or they were able to sabotage things in a way that was showing their devotion. Yeah, their devotion to their country and their their existence in this resistance. And so about that time after the France was taken over, just fast forward a little bit, not going into deep detail, but Charles de Gaulle had sent out a message and he, he just got on the airwaves and said basically, don't don't let this happen. Don't let this just happen. Don't let Germany take us over. Yeah, well Germany already took him over, but he said, you know, don't basically don't take this line down. Like Yeah. Fight. 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 And so they took that seriously. So the ones that really got involved in this were the young and the women. And a lot of the men, most of the men all were part of this. But the few of the, the younger women. The one thing that really disturbed me when I saw that, that there were so few women that joined the resistance. Ugh, the part that disturbed me was an explanation was that because the Nazi soldiers were so good looking and they would work out without their shirts on, that the girls didn't see them as being a threat, and they didn't see them as being... Perhaps in the beginning of the war, you mean? Like, yeah, in the beginning of the war. I can't imagine they not, not you know, realizing no, it, later on. Later on, but when they are right. in, in France, the, the Nazi soldiers, when they were in France and they'd just taken it over, this is how they came across. And so there were so many, if you look back at that time, there was a lot of children born of German... French. Okay, so that part disturbed me a whole bunch that they just were, you know, overtaken by their quote muscles and didn't resist them. But a lot of the other ones really did resist them and the ones, especially the ones that were a part of journalism. And so they were able to get that information out with the in the form of pamphlets and, and resistance materials that they sent yeah, out. Yeah, important information is very important. And then to read it and to, to learn. Right. Instead of just kind of going with the flow. And that's what happened. And then, of course, then these women were very close friends with each other, bonding together with their education and understanding of what was really happening around them. And were they willing to take this up? One of the women, and I think that um, Carolyn Moorhead spoke about her in her interview, if you listen on NPR, um, she talked about one of them, and I apologize, I can't think of which one, which the name was, but... Um, her parents were really upset with her for leaving and being a part of the resistance, you know, because she had a young child at home. And they said, how could you leave your own child? And she says, because I have a young child that I need to do this. And so that's so for their future. Yeah, that was so incredibly impactful to me. So this is this is their story. And it's told in full for the very first time. And that's something that, you know, as I got through and got through reading this, that impacted me, that statement right there just like was gut wrenching to me. Because think about this, everything that they went through, they weren't, and then when they got back home, spoiler alert, when they got back home and they were able to tell their story, they weren't able to talk to people about it. People didn't want to hear about it. People didn't want to hear their story. So they had to keep this bottled up. And so when Carolyn Moorhead went and interviewed them, um, the four that she was able to interview when they were in their 90s, they were just ecstatic to be able to spill this out and to purge this and to, to be able to share their story and share 
what they went through. And I think that that is extremely important. And it's important for us to read these kind of books, to talk about these kind of books, and um, to understand exactly what happened and then learn from that history. It's very impactful. Yeah. I can imagine feeling so isolated in your own country no. to come back and just feel so isolated. The country wanted to move on. And something that I was reading too, that the, and, and the book touched about is that the role of women in this resistance movement was underplayed even by the women themselves in the aftermath, as well as the role of the female pilots. And when we talked about in the flight girls, so to me, that's so tragic for them to be living this and, and the horrors that they went through and not be able to express that or be valued for their warriorship. They're just, you exactly. know, the, they just the, kind of, you know, yeah. pulled up their bootstraps and kept going mm-hmm. and didn't want to didn't want to have anything to do with it anymore. Just kind of like, OK, kind of been there, done that, moving on. Right. Made me think of uh, the, our troops that came back from Vietnam. Right. So, and, and even now, troops that come back now, and, and that just, it, it's heart-wrenching. But again, that's why I say that we need to read these books. We need to understand these. And I hope that the listeners, that you take the time to read this book. And if you don't, I hope that you take the time and it's something about this podcast is impactful to you. Because this one, this one got me a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. So moving on with the history of this, we have um, on the morning of January 24, Fourth of 1943, the German soldiers and French police herded these 230 women aboard a train bound for a destination about which these passengers knew nothing. And of course, they wouldn't know where they were going. Just like the um, the Jewish people, they didn't know where they were going. They had maybe some rumors of different things that they might have heard, but they had absolutely no idea really where they were heading and what they were doing, where they were just being taken families. But about half of them were communists who in one way or another had aided or had been charged with aiding in the French resistance. The majority, and this Carolyn Moorhead wrote this, um, came from every part of the region of France, from Paris, from Bordeaux, from Brittany, Normandy, and Aquitaine, and along the banks of the Loire. They had sheltered resistors. They had written and copied out anti-German pamphlets. These were people from, women from all different areas, um, doctors, dentists, the four chemists, um, farmers, shopkeepers, teachers coming together to be able to be a part of this resistance. They'd never heard of places like Auschwitz. They would have meant nothing to them if they'd known the name of where they were going. But they stayed there for two years until the end of the war. 49 of them survived and given the unspeakable conditions into which that they were thrust, it is a miracle that they made it out to freedom. And because of the friendship between them, which had protected them and made it easier to withstand the barbarity. Now, when you hear that, you're going to think, okay, well, what kinds of things would you do to protect your friends? In this book, the things that they did to protect their friends was beyond any comprehension. Sticking them into holes in the barracks and hiding them so that they wouldn't be they wouldn't be detected things like that it's just sharing their food when they had no food sharing the water like that one was an, really huge. just devastating to me that 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 story and she just it was just overwhelming for her to not have water and then so her their the friends all gathered together and gave up their water when they had none right just for her to survive and they all didn't know if they were going to live past the next day either but they did mm-hmm. they talked to each other when they're out in lines for um 
roll call, you know, reminding them, move your toes, stay, you know, stay steady and get through this. And then being able to sing to each other and tell each other's stories. And boy, to be able to utilize and reenact a play because they actually took the time to figure out a script of one and they reenacted the whole thing. I mean, things like that to be able to keep them alive, but really, holy cow. Thinking of friendship formed over the duration of the women's lives. And this is where it was really important that she told the backstories of each of these women first. What do you think, how, how can you relate to understanding what these women went through? You understand the backstories of what they did, and I'm not saying by any means we understand what it would be like to go through what they went through, but we do understand the importance of friendships, and we do understand getting through difficult times in our, in our own lives, so in our own levels. Um, what, what do you think? How do you think that the friendships were what were so key to their survival? Well, the book refers to that the women felt like losing each other was as bad as losing themselves. And to me, that was the ultimate victory against Nazism, is that to, to, that in the end, love won because they loved each other. And I also think it kind of goes back to Maslow's hierarchy a little bit, where uh, Maslow's hierarchy basically is, you know, five basic categories of needs, you know, the physiological, the safety, the love, esteem, and self-actualization. And to me really the love they had for each other and that sense of belonging to each other was really the key to life. I thought, you know, that sense of belonging as well and how strong that sense of connection was. And I don't know, can really correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't it the women that were kind of ostracized because they had ratted each other out or they were, they had given information when they shouldn't have. And they were some of the first to go when they got to the camp because they realized that, that they weren't going to survive because they had been ostracized and they didn't have that sense of belonging. Those tiny little victories. I mean, to me, some of the most moving parts in the book was, like you were talking about, the plays, how they recognized special days like Christmas days. You know, they had these small rebellions as victories. They would sing the French national anthem in the worst of times to bring people together, to keep up that, those physiological, you know, not just the physiological needs, but the emotional needs and how it, you know, how it all connected to their very survival. Something that, and I guess I might be pronouncing this wrong, but Nietzsche said, you know, a why to live as well as a how to live. Right. And one thing connected to that that really um, struck me was when they had conversations with each other and the why to live and things, they, um, they knew about each other's children that were at home, that they left at home, but they didn't bring them up because they knew that that was a trigger too that much. was too much. And you couldn't, that wasn't... You didn't need to remind somebody that their children were home. Other things maybe you, you need to remind them of or, you know, keep on the head of the spotlight. But but that's one thing that, you know, they knew. Don't don't bring that up because that's just too painful to, to bring up to the surface. Right. Wow. One of the things that the book talked about was this idea that the male prisoners did not display that same level of unity. What do you think that was? Like, they really didn't, even in Flight Girls, they didn't really spend a lot of time talking about the males in the book. So we really don't know if they had the sense of, of connection that the females did in that book, as well as this. You know, they obviously the story was about female French resistors. But to me, it was so interesting that they did happen to mention that, that they just, the men did not display that same sense of unity. And to me, it was, the question was, why is it that women was so much stronger in them is it just because we're less competitive maybe i i don't think it's that i think that 
okay, I think that when I when I think about that question, I think about the backstories and how relatable that they are and that they are, you know, working women that are goal oriented, that are educated. These women could be any one of us. And so to consider how they survived and bonded is relatable in the sense that in times of trauma and grief, we do things instinctively. And it isn't until later or after someone else sees the acts that we realize the impact. Not to demean the horrors that this was, but in the human nature, that's what gets us through. And it's the way that we grow and develop in our lives, such as reading, studying, being open and empathetic, that that gives us the advantage over others that, well, don't read and do that. And I'm not saying men don't. I'm just saying women tend to allow themselves to the opportunities to not only share intellectual thoughts. Um, women are open to have these conversations. They share their intellectual thoughts. They have the emotion behind those day-to-day activities. So when considering Maslow's hierarchy of needs, women strengthen the base, and that allows them to overcome the lack of the basic. Do all women do this? No. And that's why some of them didn't, I, I feel like some of them didn't um, survive as long or make those connections, the ones that weren't able to make the connections because they, quote, ratted them out or whatever. Um, gave information. Yeah, gave out that information. But the key here, and my, my question is why, do the men fall under that same umbrella? Not all men, but some of them do. And I think that it's experience and empathy. Empathy and just, was what I was thinking about when you are talking. Yeah, experience and empathy. And that stuff is learned. And that's learned through conversations and relationships and of course reading and all those things that you know men don't take the time to sit down and have an emotional or an intel you know i don't want to say an intellectual conversation but you know what i mean a, a an emotion maybe they don't feel as free to do that maybe not or yeah. maybe you know maybe it's more of a judgment thing i think that women were open to or the women that are open to having a tribe that you are able to be trusted to share what you feel, whether it's agreed upon or not, and then build that bond. All of that took an emotional toll on those women, though. I mean, just that living day to day on the edge, never know if you're going to live or you're going to die. But also just the emotional component. They talked about in the book all the time period after when they were when they returned home. And then thinking about that the women that returned home, their families would come to visit them, the families of the dead would come to visit them, and then asking yourself, how much are you going to share about what their loved one faced? I can't even imagine, you know, you kind of walk that line of, do you tell them, do you not tell them, what's better? And the a bunch of the ladies also testified in some of the Nazi trials afterward, and having to go through that. Uh, one, of the, one of the women referred to the fact that she would thought it was so unusual that she was very surprised that the Nazi didn't know her face when he saw her, yet it was so ingrained in her mind. They found what was so sad about it all was that they found that they had wanted to live so badly, but then when they returned, they found they really no longer cared whether they lived or not, just because that just, I can't even imagine the emotional turmoil and toll that it took on their lives. Many of them actually suffered from severe depression, and a, a really high percentage of the survivors died within 10 years just living with that, that emotional weight. Wasn't that like a third of them? Yeah, a third yeah. of them yeah. living with that emotional weight of it. And, but in the end, I think the story is such a hopeful story because it was that love and that friendship and that commitment they had to each other and how those, those bonds that they had never weakened with time. You know, that kind of love was a victory against Nazism 
So I hope that that's what people take away from the book is that love does their love conquered all for them for them. And that those friendships are really important. Really important. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on it. You can check us out on our social media, Twitter account at Book Club Juxtas or our Facebook account, Book Club Juxtapositions. Feel free to rate and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcast. Our next books will be The Art of War by Sun Tzu versus Machiavelli's The Prince. And that our next episode will be posted on February 24th. And we're going to be looking at those books and their relevance to today and what they have to say about power. So Sun Tzu's The Art of War, an ancient Chinese military treatise that speaks to us with as much wisdom and grace today as it did all those years ago. Thank you so much for spending your time with us. Ciao, Ciao bellos. Ciao.